My name is Pedro Mujabafid, and we at TMC aim to discuss and inform students regarding topics which aren't covered well in medical school. This interview series is aimed at answering the questions that medical students, interns and doctors-to-be have regarding the various career pathways for medical graduates. Now the views and opinions expressed here are purely personal and are not reflective or representative of the stance of any employer, college, medical service, endorsement or other person. Alright, let's start the show. Hey everyone, with us today we have the esteemed Dr. Ranjana Srivastava, who I'm sure needs no introduction, but we'll give you one anyway. Ranjana is a medical oncologist with a keen interest in authoring. She has published several books and countless and has countless news publications under her belt. She's a public speaker and a broadcaster as well. In 2014, Ranjana was recognized by Monash University as the Distinguished Alumni of the Year. She was also included in Westpac's 100 Influential Women of 2015 and is also a Fulbright Scholar. With that, I'd like to welcome to the show Ranjana. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey from medical student to where you are now? Oh, gosh, it's a long time ago, but I'll, I'll try to remember. <laughs> so I started medical school in the early 90s. I went to Monash University, graduated with first-class honors, and uh, had decided by the time I graduated that I wasn't cut out to be a surgeon because I had fainted in theatre and surgery had to be delayed while they got me out. And then during my obstetrics rotation, I had nearly dropped a baby and so the mother was irate. So I thought, well, maybe I'm not cut out for obstetrics either. And I knew that I wanted to be a physician, although I wasn't quite sure what kind of a physician because I, I really liked all aspects of general medicine. And uh, then as you do, I embarked on physician training and uh, had the wonderful opportunity of doing a rural rotation with an oncologist who really sort of uh, inspired me to become one. And I never really looked back. I remember, I remember that very night still. I remember the night I was doing a ward round, and I've written about this in one of my books, Tell Me the Truth. And I was standing at the door, um, and this particular patient had been, uh, she was very unwell, and I had looked after her through the day, uh, done everything for her. I thought I had done a good job of looking after her, and she was certainly very grateful for all the things that I had done as a, as a resident doctor. And uh, my consultant came around, it was nearly 10 o'clock at night, and she had left a bedside lamp on for him. And he walked in and I sort of stood at the door waiting to get the drug chart. And uh, as soon as he walked in, she, you know, her voice lit up and she said, I'm so glad you are here. I feel safe. Oh, wow. And I thought, wow, I have looked after this woman for the whole day and she has been grateful and pleasant, but I just couldn't help notice that the complete change in her voice and in her tone and in the fact that she felt safe and I remember saying to myself this is the kind of doctor I want to be and I never really looked back from that day and I've had a very happy career a fulfilling career as an oncologist um, and and yeah that's that's the story of my 
of my medical journey, and I'm sure we'll talk about my writing journey at we some will, point definitely. too. <laughs> yeah. So besides that, uh, I guess that one very inspirational, amazing moment, were there any other moments in it that kind of confirmed that you love medical oncology? Look, I think, you know, oncology is a very special line of training, and I think you really do have the opportunity to accompany people through a very difficult time from diagnosis often until death. Mm-hmm. And there have been many, many affirming moments in my career where I feel that when I come home, it has been a day well spent. It has been time valuably spent with people, with their relatives. Uh, I think oncology does take a tremendous emotional toll on the oncologist. But I've met some wonderful doctors and countless, countless wonderful patients and relatives who really make it worthwhile. Mm -hmm. And besides medical oncology, before you had your, I guess, epiphany type of moment, what other fields were you considering and what pushed them away besides this one moment? Well, look, I mean, I still say that I would have been happy in almost any field of general medicine, which is why, in fact, I've continued to practice general medicine even Oh, uh, even though I have become an oncologist, I still do mm-hmm. ward service in general medicine for three months of the year because I really was very happy in medicine. And it doesn't matter if I'm, uh, you know, sort of parsing the dose of fruzamide for someone or looking after their diabetes or wondering what to do about their lung nodule. I find medicine endlessly fascinating. I think, you know, I find physiology fascinating and the interplay of various illnesses and various organ systems, it's, it's all interesting. And I think I was just fortunate that I happened to come across someone who inspired me to do oncology. But I dare say that if I'd had a similarly brilliant rotation somewhere else, uh, I think I might have done that. And, and mm-hmm. you know, I think this goes to show that in medicine, good mentorship and good role models are so vital because that's that's who we become. Yes. Now, before we dive a bit deeper into your work as a medical oncologist, can you tell us a little bit about your uh, other roles that you have at the moment and what they involve, mostly, I guess, your authoring type roles? Right, right. So, you know, I've always been a writer and I remember writing my earliest short stories and little ditties when I was about five or six years old and had just learned to to read and write. So I've had a long-standing interest in in writing. Mm -hmm. And I have written a journal since I was 10 years old in primary school. Uh, and, And then I kept writing a journal. And when I entered medicine, many people said and I too wondered whether it would be possible to keep up writing when there was so much other stuff to do, studying mainly. But I found that continuing to write a journal was a wonderful way of debriefing and reflecting on what I was doing and increasingly as we entered the hospitals and there were confronting scenes and some amazing encounters, I kept writing and then I became a doctor, I graduated and there came another crossroad where I thought really with uh, all the hours I'm putting into medicine, will there be time to write? And again, I was uh, happily proven wrong and I kept writing. And then as I became uh, a, a doctor, I thought, well, 
every day when I come to work, I'm really stumbling over stories. There is so much going on in medicine, so much going on in people's lives, that if that's what you choose to think about and write about, there was no dearth of material. So I kept writing. And along the way, I began publishing my very first piece, my very first piece, I think as a medical student, I published in The Lancet. And again, I had a wonderful role model who encouraged me to send my essay about my medical elective, which I did in India, to yeah. The Lancet. And I remember saying to him, I'm a medical student, you know, people like me don't publish in The Lancet. And he said, oh, of course they do, you know, send it in. And that was my very first taste of, of publishing in a medical journal. I had published in uh, my stories in other forms before when I was a high school student. And I got a real taste for it. And then I started writing and publishing in various other journals like JAMA. And, uh, and then eventually sort of fast forward to the 2000s when I was an oncologist I entered a call that the New England Journal of Medicine had put out for writers and yeah. they liked what I sent them. Well, in fact, they said that I wasn't quite what they were looking for in terms of a regular writer, a correspondent, but they liked what I had sent them and asked me to write a column, to write an essay, which I did. And that took me to, to many other excellent experiences and I continue to write for the New England Journal. In the meantime, I started writing books. I was very fortunate that I won a couple of writing prizes along the way, which brought me to the attention of Penguin, now Penguin Random House, the big publisher. Mm -hmm. Yep. And, you know, I've had, I've really had a, a very fortunate career in writing as well that Penguin uh, asked me to write a book about my experiences, and I was a brand new oncologist at the time, uh, really still coming to grips with uh, the issues of life and death and, you know, mortality and existentialism. Mm -hmm. uh, and, I, and I published my first book in 2010, which was Tell Me the Truth, which is really a series of stories about what it feels like to be on the other side of the desk from the patient. And from then on, I think one thing leads to another. And in the last, so I wrote for The Age, which is a Melbourne-based newspaper for, for uh, some time. And then that folded and I thought I would probably never find another platform. And then The Guardian mm -hmm. came along. And so for the last few years, I have written a fortnightly column for The Guardian on sort of medicine and society and ethics and whatever takes my fancy and, and really whatever I think is important for the public to know about medicine. Now, it's one thing for us to, I guess, write and write, uh, I guess, columns and whatnot here and there for different uh, news sources. And it's another thing to be able to author a book completely. Was it Penguin that uh, approached you to write a book? And did you have, I guess, your own ideas or did they ask you to write about a particular thing or did you approach Penguin? So that's a really good question. So, you know, I, I'm i like every other bit-time, part-time writer who dreams of publishing a book. Mm -hmm. So what actually happened is that uh, I entered a competition that the Cancer Council was running at the time for Daffodil Day, and I won the award for, I think it was called the Outstanding Short Story Award or something, and it was a story about a cancer patient of mine who was... Oh. 
who was dying as I was um, pregnant. And just the juxtaposition of life and death and how awful it all was, uh, was sort of the, the nub of my story and what I learned from that. And at that uh, award ceremony, I met someone who came up to congratulate me on my story and we began talking and I said, I really wanted to write a book. And this, this stranger said to me, well, let me see how I can help. Uh, send me some pieces of your work. And I think the message here is that when you aspire to become a published writer, you do have to keep working behind the scenes. So I had a body of work that I had always been writing, and some of it was published, most of it was not published. But when he asked me for samples of my work, I actually had something to send him. So I sent along a few stories, and uh, unbeknownst to me, you know, he was friends with the uh, the head of publishing at Penguin at the time and sent the, the sample chapters along to him. And before I knew it, uh, I had a call from Penguin saying that they would be happy to publish, a, to publish my book. And so I set about writing that book. <laughs> that <must laughs> so been an it amazing really feeling. was a dream run. And, you know, I'm very sympathetic to authors whose uh, work, can often be very good, but lies in a slush pile. And I think one of the hardest things about publishing is getting someone's attention. Although yeah. I must say that's changing with self-publishing and blogs and, and there's a lot more happening in the publishing world than was happening 10 or 15, 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, I've, and, and I think once you have a relationship with a publisher and you are keen to write and you can produce good work, hopefully... Uh, they're keen to work with you. So I'm now working on my fifth book oh, wow. uh, with Penguin, hopefully. And uh, yeah, so it's, it's, been, it's been good. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of hard work fit in between uh, being a clinician. But, uh, you know, like anything, if you, if you love it, you find the time for it. Please make sure to complete the survey for this episode. We want to make sure the episodes are as useful as possible and the surveys help us to monitor whether they're making an impact on our fellow peers. It only takes 30 seconds and it helps more than you can imagine. The link can be found on our Facebook and our blog. Do you think Jama and Lancet and whatnot are still looking for the kinds of essays that got, uh, got you started? And if yes or no, is that the best way you think people should maybe look to start their publishing career as a doctor or do you think the way to go is more blogs and whatnot? That's an excellent question and I think ever more so. And I would encourage all your listeners and anyone who's interested in writing, in particular the places that I got my start were Lancet, JAMA, Annals of Internal Medicine who have two uh, columns. So one is called On Being a Patient and the other one is called On Being a Doctor. JAMA has a long-running um, Piece, a long-running column called uh, A Piece of My Mind. Increasingly, the New England Journal in this perspective section, which is at the front of the journal and probably the most popular part of the journal, invites essays on, uh, you know, just human encounters in, in medicine. And there are many, many other magazines. You know, in fact, the Journal of Clinical Oncology, which is a, a prominent oncology journal, has a section for the art of medicine. And I think this whole area of 
reflecting about medicine, narrative in medicine has really gained ground. And I can tell you that I really do believe that writing for those journals and being rejected and working my way up and honing those pieces really did make me a much better writer to the extent that in all my books I have acknowledged some of the editors, especially the editor of the New England Journal, the editor I've been working with now for 10 years or so or more, um, working with really high caliber people is one of the best ways of mm -hmm. getting better. Do you prefer writing for other doctors or writing for patients to read? That's a good question. So, you know, when I now, obviously I write for the Guardian and it's a fortnightly column and it is a column that gives me a public platform from which to speak to the average person mm -hmm. who is often, in fact, not very literate about health, but all of us are interested in well-being and all of us should care about our health. So sometimes I come across something or I have an experience and I do find myself thinking, now who is this experience going to inform? Is it something for the patient or is it something for the doctor? Mm -hmm. So, And sometimes it's for both. So in the New England Journal, for example, I have written about... Uh, you know, compassion towards our patients or listening to our patients. I've written about um, medical hierarchy and how destructive medical hierarchy can be. But in some form or the, or the other, I've also written about these issues in The Guardian because I think that other people also ponder these issues and it's important for them to hear from a doctor's viewpoint. But there are certain things that I sometimes feel would be better suited to a New England essay. Um, for example, my latest New England Journal essay was about the interpreter and about the value of an interpreter in the clinic and how important it is that we acknowledge the wonderful work that our interpreters do because without them, we would really be helpless. Now, I thought that that was a piece that really uh, I was speaking to doctors, I was speaking to my colleagues, I was speaking to health professionals, and it was a piece that may not have had the same impact as a newspaper column as it did in the New England. Lovely. Um, could you please tell us a little bit about your specialty um, and what your typical day involves? Yeah, so I'm a medical oncologist. So a medical oncologist's chief role, I suppose, is to see people through the diagnosis of cancer. So a lot of my time is spent discussing life and death issues, communicating with people about prognosis, about uh, terminal illness. I prescribe chemotherapy. I see people through the journey of chemotherapy, through the toxicities of treatment. So I see, I mean, every day I see a lot of people who are at a very difficult stage in their life. They're very vulnerable. They are frightened. They are often quite sick, but not all of them are sick. Many of them are well and they've been mm -hmm treated fully for their cancer. Many of them have been cured of their cancer and are in remission and are visiting me uh, for consultations. But, you know, I think any brush with cancer leaves a person traumatized for a long time. And so mm -hmm. a big part of my job is not simply um, 
practicing the science of medicine, but also practicing the art of medicine, which is why I love it so much. Mm-hmm. So uh, I see inpatients who have been admitted with various cancer-related problems and, and outpatients. There is administrative work along the way. There is the supervision of residents and registrars, which is something I enjoy very much. On my general medicine ward rounds, uh, I often have medical students join us, which is also lovely. And so a lot of teaching. Yeah. So what would you say is the most rewarding part about your specialty? Look, I think that it is true of a lot of medicine that the most wonderful part of medicine is that you get to help people. And whether you are a medical student or an intern or a, or a consultant, there are so many opportunities along the way to help mm-hmm. people, to make them feel less vulnerable, and to really feel at the end of the day that you have eased someone's suffering. And and it's wonderful. It's such a privilege. It's especially in oncology, it is such an enormous privilege to be witness to the intimacies of people's lives and people trust you with with their deepest utmost secrets and desires and wishes and it's it's a very sacred place to be in and i love it mm-hmm. um, and what aspect of oncology would you say you struggle the most with i think that you always have to keep up in medicine and that can become very challenging. Um, Oncology is bounding along at an unprecedented pace and that has real challenges where something appears in a newspaper this morning and patients will bring a cutout and present it to you in clinic. Uh, And there is a very large word of mouth component and publicity component to having cancer and having access to cancer treatments. So you really do have to keep up with current information, which is very, very difficult because there are literally thousands and thousands of studies published every year that uh, feels almost impossible to keep up with. Mm. Having said that, it is, I mean, you know, we, we all do our best and we work with, with our colleagues. I think the other difficult part of oncology is being emotionally available for your patients. Yeah. And, and that can be tricky and challenging and also uh, causes a lot of burnout. So oncologists have a very high rate of stress and burnout and I think anyone who encountered the sort of things that we do on a day-to-day basis would have no trouble understanding why, which is why I think it's it's so wonderful that I can shut myself away from that partly by writing and reflecting and having some time to practice to be a more mindful doctor. Yeah, sure. Um, so you mentioned that you know oncology is advancing pretty quickly in regards to research and Um, new treatments. Where do you see oncology in about five to ten years? Well, I think, you know, it's it's very exciting and it will be really interesting to see. And I think even from the time that I was a registrar to now, the changes couldn't have been predicted. And I think with things like whole genome sequencing and immunotherapy and more 
tailored treatment for a patient. So, you know, it's not just that a patient has a cancer, but it's the individual who has a very individual form of the cancer. And more and more, we are hoping to treat that individual and avoid many of the toxicities of treatment and really target treatment to the patient. And I think that in the next five to 10 years, that's where we will head. And hopefully, we will make cancer treatments far more bearable, far better for everyone. Yeah, sure. Um, do you ever struggle with managing sort of patients' expectations um, in a field such as oncology? Oh, I think part and parcel of being an oncologist is managing expectations. I, yeah. I think managing your own expectations as well of what you can do for patients and when you actually can't treat them anymore and when you have to accept that your patient who you have known for a long time and you have a relationship with is going to die. So yeah. yes, managing expectations. And I often write about sort of the tightrope between sustaining hope and telling the truth, especially when people are dying. So yes, it's a, it's a constant juggle, but I think that's what good medicine is about. It's not simply about writing a prescription, prescribing chemotherapy. It's mm. actually about looking at the whole patient and being aware of their expectations and, and walking hand in hand with them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so how competitive do you think oncology is at the moment? And if a student was looking to get into medical oncology, how should they make themselves a more desirable candidate? Well, I think it's no secret that all of medicine is competitive. I mean, from the time yeah. you apply to medical school to when you're looking for a position as an intern and then various training programs. I think that before any student settles on a specialty, it's really important to go and spend some time within that specialty. And, you know, I flirted with a lot of specialties, including emergency mm. and psychiatry, etc. And I think that by spending some time, and I don't mean a day or a few hours, but trying to spend a week or two in a specialty, really seeing what people do day to day is very important because it actually gives you some perspective on what your life might be like. And yeah. a lot of specialties that sound great to start with, um, you know, they, that, that excitement can fade away. So my advice to any student would be to think about not just the, the glitter and glamour of a profession, but why you want to do it. What is it that calls to you from within that profession? Because I think that's the way to actually stay well and healthy when you are practicing a, a profession. And then, you know, it's, it's hard work. It's a lot of diligence. Mm -hmm. um, it's showing enthusiasm. And I keep saying to medical students that, you know, the way to distinguish yourself from other students is to be interested, to ask questions on rounds, to make yourself memorable by being helpful and being curious and by being engaged. And so that would be my advice to, to all students, regardless of what specialty you want to end up in. Mm -hmm. Sure. And you've mentioned a bit um, about having good mentors and how important that is. How would you recommend students go about finding mentors? Well, I think that it involves being present. It involves being present in the hospitals and not cutting corners. 
And if you are lucky enough to be placed in a hospital as a medical student, you need to do more than just your rostered share of showing up to things. And the best medical students and the most memorable medical students are those who have extended themselves. And I think when you extend yourself, when you look beyond what you are rostered to do, you run into interesting people. You run into people who are interested in you because they see you around. And I think we are so fortunate in medicine to have so many good people of varying interests who are willing to help people. I think one of the things that sets us apart as doctors is that you know, we enter the profession to make a difference. And I think that difference extends to young students and to young doctors. So there is certainly no lack of people who would be proud to help and guide and mentor. And I really think that it is up to students to identify those people make and, 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 to, and to approach them and not to be shy. The other thing I would say is that mentorship doesn't necessarily have to come from a doctor. And mm-hmm. I'm a big believer that a mentor is someone who can inspire you and who can guide you in life. And they don't have to be doctors to do that. And certainly some of the people I'm fondest of and who I look up to for help have nothing to do with the field of medicine. And that's very refreshing because they bring a different perspective to life and, and that can be very valuable. Make sure to keep in touch with us through social media. Our handle is at the Med Collab, that's T-H-E-M-E-D-C-O-L-L-A-B, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also subscribe to our podcast for our weekly release. Now back to the show. Can you comment on your work-life balance and family balance and whatnot? Um, especially partly as a medical oncologist, but also given that you do a lot of work and other things as well? Yeah, so, you know, it's a, it's a perpetual question that I think we all have to answer to ourselves. I have three young children. I try to be involved in, a, in their schooling, in their school activities, um, apart from being a doctor, you know, I'm a wife and a mom and a, and, a, and a daughter and a sister and all those other things. And I think it's really important to, to keep that in mind. And I guess, you know, one of the things that I remind myself about is that no one is indispensable. And often in medicine, we have a tendency to think that if we weren't around, our patients would just fall apart and who else would know how to do the work as well as we do and how could they possibly know all the details that we do. But you know, life goes on. And while it's very important to give your heart and soul to work while you are there and be mindful as a doctor, it's incredibly important to be mindful as a person outside of medicine. And so I try yeah, just course. like every other parent does to, to switch off, to do things with the children, to, to honor my other relationships beyond medicine. And that means keeping friendships alive, keeping relationships alive. And all of that takes time. And 
I, I don't have a magic solution to it. Um, I'm like many other people, and I often feel that I come up short in all the areas that I try to work in. But, you know, I think day after day, uh, things do get done, and I find that, you know, my patients get looked after, and my writing gets done, and the kids are generally happy, and most of my friendships are still alive. So I think you, you know, you, you, do, you give your best. Mm-hmm. And, and and you get lots of sleep and rest, which is, I think, really important, in fact, no joke, to uh, to having a healthy life. So I, I'm i a big fan of doing regular exercise, and I would get out most days and either go for a run or do something that mm-hmm. that's just for me. It's for keeping fit, and I don't tend to deprive myself of sleep. Does medical oncology lend itself to a generally a good uh, work-life balance in terms of the hour, number of hours that you work, uh, on-calls, medical emergencies, and being called in and whatnot? I think, you know, increasingly the case with all specialties is that you can define what you want to do and how much you want to work and what sort of a practice you care to have. And, you know, I think it's, it's very important to not buy into uh, sort of a story that, for example, every surgeon is always busy and never has time for anything else, or every oncologist is always answering medical emergencies and so on. I know medical oncologists who work, you know, seven days a week, and I know medical oncologists who work four days a week. And and the same goes for general practitioners and anesthetists and other people. So I think it is about drawing some lines, drawing some boundaries from an early age and saying, what makes me happy? You know, does being at the hospital all day, all night, being always available, is this mm-hmm. how I'm going to define myself? Or you know, do I also want to, I don't know, play the piano or do some art mm-hmm. or, you know, be at church or whatever it is. And, you know, I, I keep saying to students that things like that don't just happen. They don't just click into place. You actually have to plan. Um, and, and you have to be within reason, fairly uh, strict about how you want your whole life to, to play out. But someone such as yourself who does have such a wide scope of activities, how many hours a week are you dedicating to medical oncology? So I see patients on three days of the week. Mm -hmm. And then I often have, and when I'm on general medicine ward service, that requires a, a comprehensive ward round every day of the week. But other than that, when I'm not doing general medicine and I'm just doing oncology, I restrict seeing patients to three days and I do administrative work and writing on the other days which affords me some flexibility. It also means that I feel that I can think through my management of patients and I'm not always so crowded by the needs of patients that I can't think beyond the immediate answers to you know to to patients i have made a deliberate decision however to not do private practice so i work mm-hmm. solely in the public hospital system which is something i believe in uh it's just part of my ethos and working in the public health system does allow one some flexibility because you tend to work in teams private practice has its own rewards um 
both uh, through more continuity of care in a lot of cases and more mm-hmm. financial rewards, but it also has a different set of issues. And so really, you know, I, I think everyone has to decide for themselves how it is that they want to live their life as a doctor. And I would like to think that when I look back, I could say that my life wasn't consumed by medicine mm-hmm. much as I loved it and that I was able to make a difference in, in other parts of life. Do you feel as though uh, medical oncology and the types of patients you're dealing with kind of lends itself to you taking your work home with you more so than, for example, maybe a, a surgeon might take their home work with them? Yeah, I think oncology does lend itself to that. And mm-hmm. it is very common for us to ruminate over patients. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, these are patients dealing with some of the worst things in their life. It's very difficult to shut yourself off from their emotion and their troubles and not thinking about it. But you don't have to. I don't think that I don't think that medicine lends itself to a neat separation. And I would say the same about many other many other doctors, that it's very difficult to neatly sort of turn off a computer in your brain and say, that's it, uh, it's five o'clock and I will start thinking about my patients at nine o'clock tomorrow morning. And neither should it be. I think good medicine is about uh, living, empathizing with the patient and being able to imagine a patient's experience. So how do you deal with it is the more interesting question. And I think how you deal with it is I think partly by reflecting on how to become the best doctor possible when you are with patients, giving them your full attention and your full help. In many cases in oncology, what is always in the forefront of your mind is that you may never see that patient again. And so it is even more important to ensure that you have treated that patient well and to the best of your capacity with not just technical skills, but also humanity and compassion. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's how one, you know, one lives the sort of continuous life of an oncologist. It's not stop start. It is continuous. It is fluid. And there are days when you stay back and you fill out people's life insurance forms because that's what you do. And, and, and I think, you know, it's, it's rewarding, but I, yeah, I, I don't think one should expect a neat separation of responsibilities. What's it like to be such a recognizable figure, um, both in, I guess, the doctor kind of world and also for patients, um, just, yeah, just for patients and just the average person outside. Does that affect, I guess, how you work or your uh, personal life or anything like that? Oh, that's a really funny question, <laughs> but, you know, to be honest, I don't really think about it. And, you know, one of the things I, I'm constantly struck by is that many of my patients, um, not struck by actually, I'm humbled by it, that many of my patients just don't know who I am. They don't care beyond the fact that I'm their doctor. You know, they don't read The Guardian. They don't listen to Radio National. They don't read the New England Journal. So they just see me for who I am. And sometimes they will stumble upon something in the news or they might be watching some television. Um, And, you know, they come in feeling proud and saying, you know, I saw you on TV or here is a picture I 
I froze my television screen and I took this photo of you. <laughs> and it's incredibly humbling and moving to think that a, a patient who is dying had the time to, um, to freeze their television screen and get out their phone and take a picture because they thought that I must be working and I didn't, you know, I didn't catch that show. It's just lovely. <laughs> but, you know, my, I had a lovely story just from recently when I had been awarded the Order of Australia in, back in January this year. And um, I showed up to clinic the next day and uh, there was a patient who was in the waiting room and I called out to her and she was with an interpreter. And the patient said that she didn't want to see me because she wanted to see her regular oncologist. And the interpreter was sort of whispering to her, well, you know, this doctor is pretty good as, as well. And, you know, <laughs> it's okay to see her. And, you know, within everyone's hearing, she says to the interpreter half in English, so I could understand it too. I don't care how good she is. I just want to see my own oncologist. Must be great to have relationships like that. <laughs> Well, it just brings you down to earth and it yeah. makes you realize that uh, no matter what your awards and, and how many pins you have on your lapel, people care about the kind of person you are. They, they care about how you treat them. And this patient obviously had such a close and warm relationship with her oncologist that no order of Australia or not was going to budge her opinion. And I thought that was wonderful. That does sound wonderful. Um, so that brings us to the end of our questions for today. But before we finish, we were just wondering if you could, um, if you had any advice for medical students or interns just in general. Oh, gosh, that's a big one. Um, that's, uh, <laughs> it's a big that's, one. Uh, <laughs> it's a big one, yeah. Um, you know, one of my favorite sayings in, in medicine is the one that Hippocrates said many, many years ago. He lived in sort of the 300 BC era and he said, may you cure sometimes, treat often, comfort always. And I think it is such a wonderful saying that really speaks to us speaks to me because I think so many times in oncology and also in the rest of medicine, it's becoming increasingly difficult to banish disease because we are all living with complex chronic comorbidities. Um, so you can only really cure sometimes. We can treat a lot more conditions in oncology and otherwise there are drugs for diseases that you will see when you become an intern that are not available yet. And, and the pace of medicine is advancing so very rapidly. It's really exciting. But, you know, the old-fashioned holding someone's hand and comforting will always stay there and, will, and was there hundreds and hundreds of years ago when doctors couldn't do any more for patients. And I think it will never go out of fashion. So I, I think, you know, the quote of curing sometimes, treating often, comforting always is something that um, I carry close to my heart. Lovely. Well, that brings us to the end of our interview. Thank you for, so much for coming on our show. You are very welcome and good luck with everything. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. If there's any doctors you'd like us to interview, or if there's any questions you'd like asked, please shoot us a message. We listen and respond to every single message that comes through.
All right, guys, see you next week.